so the confession before starting this sermon is this is a passage I would never have chosen to preach on. Um, I don't generally, I'm comfortable preaching about the book of Revelation and I've only done it maybe three or four times in 20 some years of ministry. So here goes, maybe I'll learn something by actually facing a problem that I never liked up until now. Revelation, the last book of the Bible, it's an, there's lots of big names here. It's an apocalyptic book, it's eschatological, all these big words. It's really talking about a future-oriented uh, um, prophetic or book about end times. And it's one of the things that captures the imagination of the world um, and of the secular world as well as the world that is involved in religion. And one of the things that's interesting about the book of Revelation is that it originally was not part of the biblical narrative or the biblical canon. There were some early um, councils or, or uh, meetings that um, didn't, didn't have it as part of the Bible because it was too weird, it was too, uh, the dream was too strange, and they were afraid of people taking it literally, which is a reason why I can see why they were afraid because people do take it literally even today. And in our Reformation, uh, where we've come about as, as a Protestant church, two figures, it's interesting, both Calvin and Luther are part of the Reformation. Luther, the patriarch of the Lutheran church. And Martin Luther had opinions about everything, and he talked a lot and wrote a lot, but he never wrote anything about Revelation. And then also John Calvin, who is the patriarch of the Presbyterian church, he wrote a book about every single a commentary is what they're called, about every single book in the Bible except Revelation. He chose not to write about that. So I think that that's interesting. And, and also the thing about being a dream, dreams are, are dangerous things. Um, in the biblical narrative, there are messages to Joseph in particular during dreams. <clears throat> and um, Jacob, as I mentioned, uh, in the children's time was wrestling with the angel and had a dislocated hip when he woke up so that there was something physical in the dream. But dreams are challenging and I do think that dreams are one of the ways that God might communicate to us. But we have to be really careful about um, not taking them too seriously. And I actually had a dream this week that I'll share with you because this is exactly why dreams probably should not be in the biblical canon or narrative. The dream I had was I was standing at two in the morning at the QFC on Capitol Hill in my bathrobe. Now, that might be unusual for me, but probably in that QFC that's not all that unusual. But then, and I'm standing there, and then suddenly um, at each end of the aisle, there's a bullhorn, Mr. Devine, Mr. Devine, step back from the Pop-Tarts. So, who knows what's going on with that dream. Maybe my friends will have a 12-step intervention for me with Pop-Tarts, maybe I need one. But I'm not sure I want that as a book of the Bible because that's um, maybe not something that we need to take that seriously. Scholars for Revelation talk to us about um, different ways than what we intend to our common culture uh, experiences that book in terms of prophetic um, end times. And the two schools of thought are one, is that it was written in about um, in around 95 AD or common era is the general thinking. 
and that it was written after the fall of Jerusalem. So the, the, we talk about the Jewish diaspora that was a part of um, Jewish people spread throughout the world up until the founding of the nation of Israel in 1948. The diaspora started in 70 AD, so that would have been 20 some years before this Bible passage was written. And it was also, um, the city was sacked, it was destroyed, people of early Christians as well, but the Jews in particular were forced to leave and the temple was destroyed and so to think about Jerusalem would have been a very difficult, sad, and emotional thing. And people then started referring to Jerusalem as in the next life, which is what we heard in our middle hymn. Um, if this life is really horrible, then I'll look, to, I'll look to the afterlife and that's when I can finally have whatever is coming to me in a way that I'm hopeful for. And that's also true for many of the African-American spirituals of our, of our nation's past. So there's also that piece that, and then they'll, they'll go to all these specifics that um, one of the things that many of us have heard of is the 666, it's the mark of the beast and it's supposed to be on someone's body, but they'll tell us, the scholars will tell us that that's actually code for the Emperor Nero who was persecuting Christians at that time. Who knows if that's the case or not, but that's a scholarly approach. And the second scholarly approach that is, I remember hearing in seminary is that it was more than that. It was also a way of, if, if you're living in the Roman Empire and you're subject of the Roman Empire, revelation are keys or codes about how to not succumb to or be complicit with that, the power and the privilege of that. I think that's probably something in our, in our day and age today when we're getting in touch with white privilege and white power and that type of thing, that that's probably a helpful interpretation for us. And I also want to just share with you on the back of the bulletin, the first paragraph is actually quite helpful. The book of Revelation was born on the island of Patmos, a place where the Roman world dumped all those people it considered vagrant and disturbers of the peace and used them as slaves in the island's quarry. It could not have been a pleasant life there, and yet out of its misery comes those words of hope and miraculous possibility. Some scholars of religion have suggested that the words of this book were spoken out loud, recited as litanies in worship services, intended to bring visions of hope alive so the island inhabitants might feel an embodied, realized hope. So knowing that reality of the setting of the book of Revelation and this John of Patmos that had the vision and the dream and wrote that down, that's helpful in that it was really a colony of people who were uh, driven away of or slaves within the Roman Empire. So looking for something of hope and looking at these wild imaginary things um, is a way of, uh, of helping us understand the setting for how that developed and, and then how we've interpreted it or maybe misinterpreted it over the time since. So what they're looking for is for hope in a challenging world. And yet today in our popular culture, we have a very different experience and it's our individual idealistic um, pull up by the bootstraps American culture that has gotten in the way, I think, of understanding the book of Revelation in a way that's actually helpful. There's a, um, 
a phrase that's been attributed to many people, and I've Googled it this week, and I cannot figure out who actually said it, but it's worth saying, no matter who we can give it credit to, but the phrase is, I take the Bible far too seriously to ever take it literally. And I think that that's the piece for us to keep in mind with understanding and dealing with Revelation. Because what's happening in probably a majority of Christianity in the United States is that Revelation is being taken literally. And, these, uh, and there's all this incredible effort to make things happen in the way that they're being foretold or, or believed to be foretold. It happens all the time. This individualistic thing happens all the time. I, when people um, find out that I'm a minister uh, in a secular setting, not, not so much like in a home or something, but like on a uh, ferry to Bremerton or something like that, that's happened every time I have visited Khan, is somehow, so, are you a minister? And I, like, what am I doing? To, I'm not wearing a collar or whatever. And, and people like Courtney do wear a collar because she wants a woman wearing a collar. She wants that in your face. Yes, women can be ordained. Um, and power to her for doing that. But so after that question of are you a minister, then there's some sort of litmus test about, well, you don't, you don't do weddings for those gay people, do you? Or the, every other time, every, I'm sorry, every time I've been asked, have you been saved? And so my response to that is, well, no, I haven't. But I belong to a church and I've definitely been changed. And I think that's more important than being saved. And then I let them pick their jaws up off the floor, and if they want to talk further about that, we can. But it comes at it from, rather than a collective, a community, a common good, it's coming at it from, have you been saved? Are you in the elect special club that I'm in? And it feels like that's such a narrow, and I, I, I'm sorry to say, shallow way of looking at the biblical narrative. But that's a, a big piece about what we are. And then, and then also, there's the whole rapture. The idea that people are going to be um, disappeared and that type of thing, and I love the the bumper sticker. You know, when the rapture comes, can I have your you know fill in the blank kind of thing? So the other dream to confess about, I've had this dream twice now, and with two different dogs in the dream. I used to work for Dottie Armstrong's Dottie's Pet Sitting Service, and I had two lovely dogs that I used to walk. One was um, Buddy, who was an Irish setter and one was Ginger, who was a yellow lab. And the first time the dream was with Buddy and the second time was with Ginger, but the dreams were the same. I'm walking along with the dog and suddenly there's the Star Trek sound about the um, transport beam. So there's that sound, the dog dematerializes and vanishes. And, the, and then there's, that's supposed to be, I think, the rapture. And I'm, of course, left here on Earth, holding the leash and holding the dog back. So again, I'm not sure that that's a dream that should go in the biblical narrative, if that's the kind of dreams that we have, but that's the reality in our world that people are so frightened and we live in a culture that puts so much energy and effort into our own personal rights that we don't think of things very easily in terms of community or in terms of the common good. So in my belief, it's really quite countercultural to be an authentic Christian in this world and in this society. And that um, I want to read another piece um, by a UCC minister named Kenneth Samuel earlier this week. 
he wrote one of the devotions in the online devotional series. And he wasn't talking about this particular Bible passage, but he was talking about a different one from the Hebrew scriptures, from um, Daniel, which is the only other book in the Bible that's apocalyptic or end times. Um, and, it's, and it has a very different feel to it. It really talks about the common good and all the kinds of things that I'm nagging about that we don't do well in our country today. And I'd like to close with what uh, Kenneth Samuel wrote. And he wrote about it, it's titled Submission, and that's also something that, just as we hear that, that's one of the five pillars of faith of Islam. Submission to God is something that, um, if you're gonna be a Muslim, you have to agree to that idea. And as challenging as that might be for us as Western American people of privilege and power. Submission is not well received in most social circles these days. Our impetus is upon being unyieldingly assertive and self-determinative. The insistence upon rigid individualism ushers in division. In the midst of all of our deep divides and bitter antagonisms, the prophet Daniel gives us an arresting vision of international cooperation founded upon a significant international submission. It is a vision of all nations and kingdoms submitting their sovereignty to the holiness of God personified in the people of God. Beyond mere wishful thinking, this vision is an urgent call for each nation to recognize how its survival is interdependent with other nations. Back in the 1960s, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. warned America that the bombs we dropped in Vietnam would explode in our own backyards, explode in increased poverty, explode in increased national malaise, explode in increased loss of economic development. We must learn to live together as brothers or perish together as fools, said Dr. King. A vision in which the independent sovereign greatness of each nation voluntarily surrenders and submits to the greater good of all God's people is the only vision that can save us from the partisanship that has us drowning in political deadlock. A recognition that each sovereign nation must submit itself to the supreme sovereignty of global peace and international justice is the only recognition that can save the planet and the people on it. Daniel's vision is ignored at our own peril. And he closes with this prayer. God, show us what should supplant and supersede our independent agendas. Help us to see our survival in our mutual submissions.